Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On this part of the program, we are continuing our series on climate change, and we bring in Mark Linus, who recently gave uh, some lectures for the Quinney College of Natural Resources on the Utah State University campus. Those lectures were titled Sustainable Agriculture, GMOs, Organic, and How to Feed the World. The other lectures speaking on climate change solutions. Mark Linus is author of several books, and the latest is The God Species, uh, Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. Mark Linus is a frequent speaker around the world on climate change science and policy, focusing in particular on how carbon-neutral targets can break the international logjam on climate mitigation and how emissions reduction should be seen as an opportunity, not a sacrifice. I'm reading here from marklinus.org. Mark Linus, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. We appreciate you uh, being here. This, of course, is a... uh, it's a hot topic, no pun intended, <laughs> um, and of great interest. Uh, I want to start uh, perhaps with uh, this idea that you have in, in your book been going to the title, The God Species. What are, what are you saying there? Well, what I'm saying, and um, uh, I, I say this with apologies to, to, to uh, any, anyone who thinks the, the world was created by God sort of in the re- very recent past, uh, that humans have, have almost developed a divine spe- uh, divine responsibility for managing the planet because we've had such a dramatic impact. So we've changed the carbon cycle in terms of um, filling the filling the atmosphere up with carbon dioxide, the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, you know. Uh, we are dominant on the planet like no other living species ever has been since the, since since life began on Earth. So that gives us an enormous responsibility, uh, but it also gives us tremendous power. And so we're sort of omnipotent in this in the same way that God has always been thought of to be. Uh, and so it was kind of kind of a, a pun really, and kind of a cultural reference, but also a political challenge that that we've got to take this this stewardship responsibility seriously. And this has happened in this past century, industrial revolution. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, um, the the big rise in carbon emissions happened since. The the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so, you know, from about 1800 onwards. But really things have taken off since the Second World War, so from the 1950s onwards when there were very rapid rates of economic growth, um, uh, where, where more of the world began to live at the kind of lifestyles where Americans have, have, have begun to take for granted. Um, and, you know, we've built tens of thousands of big dams on the world's rivers. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've converted large areas of land away from forestry into agriculture. Uh, and and we've begun to to extinguish a lot of biodiversity. So this is kind of a wildlife biodiversity extinction extinction crisis as well. So it's up to us humans, what planet, what 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 species will continue to share this planet with us over the next few centuries. You talk about planetary boundaries. You, you say you had an aha moment in a conference in in Sweden, and that this is this is not only climate change; it goes beyond that. Yeah, and and it's important that it's not only climate change. Um, because we've got all of these interrelated issues like land use, like water use, uh, like the like the um, um, the biodiversity extinction issue, uh, and so this but this planetary boundaries concept is not mine. It came from a team of, of scientists led by a professor, a Swedish professor called Johan Rockström, and I was with them in in one of their first workshops in Sweden, uh, and it just struck me that this was a, a really useful sort of frame for looking at the environmental issues which face face humanity overall over the coming century um, because you know it just seems so overwhelming doesn't it when you've got like hundreds of issues and you've got overfishing to think about and deforestation and actually this came down to nine um, you know the and, and climate change was one of the one of the top level ones but it wasn't the only one and and seeing how these things intersect you know to give you one example it's often proposed that we should use more biofuels to tackle climate change well if we do that we're going to be converting more land away from uh, from, from forestry for example and so you know there's a there's a trade 
trade-off there. Uh, and there's a trade-off if you want to use more water for hydroelectricity to reduce carbon emissions, because then you're taking more water out of the river systems and so on, and that has an effect on biodiversity. So uh, it was a really useful way to begin to look at some of these trade-offs and, and, and the, you know, the, the difficult real-world decisions that we're faced with. So the, the idea of planetary boundaries, these are there's nine different areas, nine different ways that humans are affecting the Earth or the, or the, the Earth systems can change, either for the good or, or bad. And there are certain boundaries past which we get into danger. Is that the That's the that proposal. The so that's mm-hmm. the proposal the scientists were making. And they, they were even putting numbers on that, saying, well, we shouldn't remove more than 4,000 cubic meters of fresh water. We shouldn't uh, push the CO2 levels in the atmosphere plus, p- past 350. Well, you know what? We're already at 394. <laughs> so actually we're into the danger zone. And that actually gives you a, a new sense of where, of where we are. So having those numbers, I think, was really useful. I mean, they've, they've come in for a lot, of a, a lot of criticism in the scientific community. And so I would say that's, that's definitely a work in progress. But in terms of what the actual issues are that they've identified, I think it's, it's a really useful way to start. And of those nine boundaries, where are we already in, in danger? What, what are the particular danger zones? Well, we're in danger in terms of climate change. We're in danger in terms of biodiversity loss because the extinction rate is so high. And also, the and, and this is an interesting one, is the nitrogen cycle. So um, before humans began to, to use artificial fertilizer in very large quantities, you know, the only nitrogen that, was, that came onto the land came from either from lightning um, through in, in rain clouds or through leguminous, uh, you know, th- through beans and clover and peas, leguminous plants fixing nitrogen from the air. So nitrogen was a very scarce resource. And because we now use it on such an enormous scale, I think it's like 135 million tons per year um, fixed into ammonia-type fertilizers, that's running off into rivers. It's causing the the famous Gulf of Mexico dead zone over 20,000 square kilometers. Um, And that's a big change in terms of the global, uh, uh, an important global chemical cycle. So that's that's one where they also said we're, we're pretty much in the danger zone. Could you maybe expand a little further on the, the new era? You say we're in the, the Anthropocene. Am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> it's, 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 I, I it's a pronunciation cr- challenge, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> Just stick with the Holocene if you find that easier. <laughs> and so this is, this is the idea that um, post-Holocene, um, you know, that was, the, that was the warm period after the end of the Ice Age. Um, before that was the Pleistocene. Um, and, when, and that was the point when we were under a big lake. In fact, we're just on the lake shore of, the, of that enormous lake in this part of Utah. Um, and so, you know, the Holocene was the period within which human civilization came about. So it's this very long, warm period with, with a fairly equable climate globally. And we're now moving into a different geological era, uh, one which is going to be a lot hotter. It's going to have more extreme weather. Uh, and it's, it's going to have a different atmospheric chemistry. We've got different mixture of gases in the atmosphere from what's been the case for um, all of geological history. So, you know, and, and so the idea that humans dominate the planet and that therefore the human anthropogenic name becomes the Anthropocene um, is a relatively new concept. But it's one which is being accepted, I think, by, by geologists who, uh, after all, get to decide on what the geological eras are that we're talking about. And so the, what's new is uh, humans have the power now. To wreck the planet or to and, and therefore to wreck the planet or to save it from themselves and that's the challenge I'm talking about and that challenge if we are to take it seriously uh, means that we've got to really um, start to think differently about not just about the situation that we're in but also challenge ourselves to be more positive I think and have a more solutions-based approach because so much of you know and I've, I've had this as a, as a young environmentalist and as a campaigner I sort of grew up thinking that we were doomed you know that we were kind of in a sort of end times uh, and we're pretty much heading towards the apocalypse. And some of my early climate books were, were fairly apocalyptic in tone. And actually, <laughs> if we do let things go out of control, it will be it will be a pretty nasty planet. But we don't have to. We don't have to go that far. And there's a lot we can do um, if we start now and we start to agree on what some of those solutions are. 
So what changed for you then? You did the early books were doom and gloom. You grew up thinking doom and gloom. Now you're not in that, that camp. Um, I, I think I just began to see that there were practical solutions out there which would work. And, and my conversion to, to nuclear power was essential, an essential part of that, that road, really, because we can't solve this problem only with wind and solar and energy efficiency, which is the conventional sort of green prescription. They will be an important part of it, but they can't do it by themselves. I mean, it's just you, you do the numbers and we're miles off. It's just not possible. So if you, if you hold to that traditional green prescription, then, yes, we're doomed, but we're only doomed because you refuse to, take, <laughs> you refuse to uh, adopt any newer and more interesting solutions. So mm. once you move past that and you say, OK, I'm going to let go of some of this ideological baggage about what technologies I'm, I'm, I'm scared of, uh, you know, we can we can begin to have a much more interesting conversation. You brought up two nuclear. That's where you part company with quite a few greens, right? Yeah, most there's greens. A split most there. greens. Yeah, well, there is, but there's a lot of greens now who are coming around to pro nuclear. I mean, I could mention in this country Stuart Brand, who's a icon of the you know 1960s, 1970s environmental movement, uh, and he he discovered nuclear you know a few years ago as well. And we've all been on the same journey where you just think either we're doomed because we can't solve this carbon emissions problem or we're going for nuclear power plus a bunch of other low-carbon solutions, in which case we, can, we need to say, right, let's get on with it. You know, let's start building these things and let's talk to people actually about the real, the real dangers and the real benefits of nuclear rather than having a conversation which is based on scaremongering, a lot of, lot of misinformation which has been built up over many decades. So um, Fukushima, I'm, I'm sure you are asked to respond to Fukushima quite often if you're if you're pro nuclear. <laughs> this was, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Fukushima was bad, wasn't it? It was, it was very nearly even worse disaster. And in fact, whole governments have gone off nuclear. Germany, didn't they change course? Uh, Germany changed course again, I think, for the third time. Actually, they went off nuclear originally in 2000 when the Green Party in Germany first joined the governing coalition. Um, so, so wherever wherever Greens are politically powerful and they've steered away from nuclear power, which is one of the reasons why I say the Green movement is substantially responsible for global warming because everywhere where, where um, nuclear power stations were not built, people ended up burning coal. It's not like the lights went out or anyone used any less electricity. And So the, the real challenge, I think, for the Green movement is not to make the perfect the enemy of the good always, and, and nuclear is a very good case of that. Now, I have actually been to Fukushima um, and uh, we were, I was there filming and, and talking to refugees, and I took my dosimeter and I looked at the actual levels of, of radiological contamination. So I do speak from some sort of direct personal knowledge on that. Um, and it was certainly it was a it was the second worst um, nuclear disaster ever after Chernobyl. There's no doubt about that, and there's no doubt that a lot of radiation was released. Um, but you know, of the 19,000 people who were killed in that natural disaster, none have died from radiation. In fact, no, no one has even re- received a dose which is which is significant in terms of their own health. So. It's a it's a it's a moderate industrial accident. This isn't the apocalypse, and it isn't a reason for countries to uh, to get out of nuclear and therefore drastically increase their carbon emissions, which is now what's happened in Japan, and it's also beginning to happen in Germany and other countries as well, which are phasing out nuclear power. Mm. Uh, isn't the potential though for you know for for extreme uh, environmental damage there with with nuclear? I mean, most most nuclear plants run just fine, but if uh, you know, the worst case scenario is is considerably worse than in, in a lot of ways we produce our energy. Not not really environmental damage. Um, I think it's a certainly it's a human health and safety issue. But so is any other um, large scale industrial process. You know, they could be a fertilizer plant, they could be a pesticide plant, they could be, you know, any number of things which which can cause evacuations temporarily or even permanently. You know, 
Um, when the Three Gorges Dam was built in China, that produces 22 gigawatts of clean power, but a million people are evacuated from that zone permanently because otherwise they'd have drowned when the lake came into being. So every energy source has, has its impact, has its social and its, its environmental impacts. And environmentally speaking, nuclear is about the most benign because you use very very tiny amounts of, of, of material, you know, namely fissile uranium, to generate n- literally enormous quantities of, of energy. Uh, and and you have a small amount of waste left over, which which can be safeguarded, uh, and so it doesn't have an effect on the biosphere. You know, there's no no one's ever been hurt from nuclear waste. No species has ever gone extinct from nuclear waste. It's not running into our watercourses. There's so much mythology about this that once you when you when you try and get to the facts and you try and say, okay, well, what what are the costs and benefits of nuclear as opposed to other energy technologies? It comes out pretty positive. If we were to embrace nuclear. Of course, a lot of the green movement doesn't want to. But if we, you're saying it's necessary, we're to embrace it to the level that, uh, that you believe is necessary. What would that, what would that look like? Um, uh, how many, how I, many plants? Well, how many, the most I know? can visualize is say we build um, four plants per month, and we get to about a thousand nuclear plants by the year 2030. If we do that in the context of also bringing in uh, a few thousand gigawatts of wind power globally uh, a couple of thousand gigawatts of solar so we need you know that big Ivanpah place in Arizona we need a few thousand of those built in the world's deserts we've got to do all this in the next 20 or so years Um, it's going to be a huge huge building challenge but we need to stop arguing about what technologies we personally prefer and get on with building all of them and that's that's the only way we can get carbon emissions down to a low enough level that we can avoid the more catastrophic outcomes of climate change Mm. So finally, on, on nuclear, is, is this a necessary evil? Is it uh, somewhat le- more benign than that? What uh, You're saying it is necessary, but... I don't even think it's that evil. You know, I've even been to Chernobyl, and, you know, the, the worst outcome of Chernobyl um, was, was the psychological damage that was done to people who, who woke up every morning thinking they were going to find a tumor on their bodies. And actually, uh, there isn't any in- increase in cancer um, other, other than thyroid cancer, which was treatable for everyone, other than, there was literally 10, 10 or so deaths. So the total death toll from Chernobyl is, is somewhere around 50. You know, this wasn't a, a catastrophe in, this, in the way that most people understand it. And this was in a very poorly regulated Soviet Union reactor without a containment building. Nothing was ever built like that in the West. You know? So that really is about as bad as it could ever get with nuclear power. And for all those other 400 and something reactors that have run problem free all of that time, you know, each of them is redu- I mean, add them all together, they're reducing carbon emissions by 2 billion tons per year. If you care about climate change, you've got to take that into the equation. We're talking with Mark Linus. He is an author writing on climate change and the environment. And uh, his most recent book is The God Species Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. He was on the Utah State University campus recently for a couple of appearances for the Quinney College of Natural Resources. His two lectures were titled Sustainable Agriculture, GMOs, Organic, and How to Feed the World, and Speaking on Climate Change Solutions. And uh, those recently on the USU campus were uh, grateful that uh, Mark Light is giving us uh, some time here for Access Utah. Um, and uh, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll... Uh, We'll talk about another disagreement that uh, Mark Linus has with uh, many greens, and that's the genetically modified uh, crops. Uh, And then we'll talk about some areas of agreement as well and and what we do not only with climate change but with some other uh, danger zones with planetary boundaries back after the break. We're back with Mark Linus. He is author of several books on climate change and the environment, the most recent of those, The God Species, Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. And uh, Mark Linus is a frequent speaker around the world on climate change science and uh, policy. 
We talked in the previous segment about uh, one disagreement Mark Linus has with many Greens, and that is uh, he sees the nuclear power as uh, as a uh, something that's necessary if we're going to really get a handle on on carbon emissions. Uh, one other uh, area of disagreement with the many Greens is uh, genetically modified crops. Mm. And uh, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit, of, a little bit about that. There, some greens see danger here. Uh, some greens do see danger here, and I was one of them until comparatively recently. So, I, I was actually one of the, um, I wouldn't say the instigators, but I, I played a role in the in the early stages of the of the movement against GM crops, GMO crops, back in the mid '90s in in the UK, um, and. If I think back to what I found scary about about this idea was was the idea that we're mixing DNA between different species and that somehow gave hu- humans too much power. There was also the issue of patenting of, of of seeds and about corporations and all this sort of stuff. But you know, with the with the with the passing of time, I've actually realised that, uh, and as I've worked closer with scientists and on climate change and other things, and I've got more. Um, more involved with the scientific community on some of these issues, um, that actually GMOs have have a potentially important role to play in the future because we can increase food production, and that's the real challenge, to do that without increasing land and without in- increasing chopping down more rainforests and stuff. So there's all sorts of things that we can do with this very useful technology of, 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 of um, recombinant DNA, uh, which can, I think, potentially be very helpful for humanity. So, again, you see this is necessary. We, we won't be able to sustain uh, the, the planet without uh, GMOs? Um, I would, that, that would be a bit simplistic to say that. It's not, it's not like nuclear in quite the same way. Um, but it's, a, it's an important part of the toolkit that biologists can have in terms of developing new types of crops. So, you know, in this part of the world, a big challenge is water supplies, of course. Um, there are new drought-tolerant corn and other types of crops being developed by, by scientists around the world. Um, if we can't use those, then we need to use more water for irrigation um, uh, in order to keep increasing yields. And if we do that, then we're going to run out of water and there won't be any water, <laughs> enough water for cities. You know, the Colorado River is going to carry on drying up. Uh, we're going to end up exploiting the aquifers and what happens when that water runs out. So, you know, it, it's, it's important to, to, to have that as an option. Um, and, and through conventional breeding, it would be pretty difficult to get to the drought-tolerant crops that we're looking for within the time we've got available. This idea of swapping around DNA, that, that does hit us at a pretty primal level, doesn't it? It's kind, yeah. of, a, kind of a punch to the gut. You, you, you've come around to, to not be worried well, about it's, that. Well, it's that visceral reaction. And I think when I was worried about it, it was because I didn't know very much about it. Um, and the more I've, I've come to understand about molecular biology, the more <laughs> – it's actually really just fascinating how genes work. Um, and I think uh, people don't – I mean, obviously, at the most simplistic level, people don't like genes and people don't want to eat genes. And they don't realize that all, all living material contains, contains genetic material. Once you get over that, people don't, people don't realize that the, the, the genetic code is the same amongst all living things. And so there's nothing fishy about fish DNA and strawberry about strawberry DNA. They're just DNA and they're just a, a coding system basically. And so if you could take a genetic uh, set of instructions from one species and put it into another, it can then express – if that gene is expressed, it can then have the same trait and take it across the species barrier. Now, you can if – you, if you look at how this is done in, in conventional breeding, uh, mostly it's done through mutations uh, or, or, through, or through crossbreeding where you've already got the trait in, in, a, in a sexually compatible um, plant or animal or whatever. But, you know, if you if – you, Hoping for mutations, you know, it's actually a much more random process. So it's, uh, what I like about GMOs actually is it's very precise. Uh, and, and for that reason, it's probably safer than, than conventional breeding. With private companies uh, developing this, and, and I've, I've driven past fields where you'd have the Monsanto sign up, uh, uh, you know, the 
they've got their uh, their patented seed uh, there. Um, with private companies owning some of these patents, uh, can that be widely dispersed? Can 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 this benefit uh, people widely across the world? I guess it's like software, really. Um, if you want to use um, Microsoft Office, you have to pay Microsoft for the license fee to do that. Uh, and you don't have to. Nobody's forcing you. You're not a slave to Microsoft Office. You can use um, an open source software. The same as no, no one's forcing farmers to buy these seeds, but they do because they find that the traits are very useful. In terms of Roundup Ready, for example, uh, herbicide tolerance or, or BT where they've, where they've got pest resistance, I mean, those have really transformed the farming process and made it much easier. And they've also reduced the use of some of the, the more toxic uh, agrochemicals. So whilst they're not my favorite types of GMOs, I mean, the ones I'm really interested in are the ones which are being developed in the public sector, which have, have more nutritional benefits for farmers in the developing world, have got drought tolerance. Um, or, or, or disease-resistant, pest-resistance, where you then don't have to use any chemicals at all. That's what I'm most excited about. But even the conventional Monsanto GMOs, I think, have been overall beneficial. And actually, don't forget, uh, Roundup Ready is out of patent in 2014. So then, then it's a kind of a free-for-all, and Monsanto mm-hmm. won't, have, won't have exclusive control anymore. And you say there are GMOs. I had not been uh, as familiar with those GMOs that are being, pub- uh, being uh, produced in or uh, developed yeah. in the public sector. Oh, absolutely, and, and to, to an enormous extent now. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars um, on some of these initiatives. And one of the best ones, I think, is, is what's known as golden rice. I don't know if you've heard about that. but Yes. Yeah. Um, this, so this is being developed in the Philippines, in Bangladesh, and in other countries where vitamin A deficiency is, is an enormous problem. And it's one where, um, which leaves hundreds of thousands of, of young children blind every year, and many of them then unfortunately die because of vitamin A deficiency because they're dependent on a staple food which doesn't have beta carotene, doesn't have pro-vitamin A in it. Uh, and so that's a, that's a nutritional deficiency. Now, um, the, the golden rice has, has been developed uh, through, through GMO technology um, but should be available to, to poorer farmers completely patent-free, patent-free within the next couple of years, hopefully. And that should, uh, should really make a difference and should, should save tens of thousands of lives if we can convince the, the green campaigners to stop opposing it because uh, that, that's been the real problem is that Greenpeace and the other campaign groups uh, don't they don't seem to to it, you can t- talk to them about vitamin A deficiency, but they, they seem to think the GMO problem GMO problem is is, is somehow even worse and is it's kind of collateral damage, unfortunately. Hmm. If you just joined us, we are uh, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Mark Linus, uh, who was on the Utah State University campus uh, recently for Quinney College of Natural Resources, talking about climate change and sustainable agriculture. He's author of several books, the latest of which is The God Species, Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. And we've been talking about nuclear energy and uh, gen- genetically modified uh, crops, and we'll get on to some other solutions uh, to uh, uh, pushing of planetary boundaries. We would talk about oh, only one of which is climate change, right? Uh, some of the others uh, would run those down again uh, for us. Yeah, well, I mean, things like water use, uh, land use, the biodiversity crisis, nitrogen use, um, uh, and also the ozone layer. Now that was a, that was that's an interesting problem because that's one that we basically solved, and we solved it thanks to Ronald Reagan, who, <laughs> you know, no one remembers this, but actually it was the Republicans who really pushed that as an environmental solution and and got the rest of the world to agree. The Europeans were holding back, and it was the Reagan administration who really forced them forced them and, and helped to save the ozone layer. A success story. Maybe we forget some of those when we're in the the gloom and doom mode. It is a success story, and if we hadn't done that, and if the uh, ozone, if ozone depletion had continued right up to the present day as as it was. 
was doing, you know, we, we would we would be seeing major changes in the biosphere. We'd all be suffering from much higher rates of skin cancer, cataracts. It would be affecting plants, um, aquatic species. You know, it would have been a really serious global environmental disaster. And the fact that we avoided that, we avoided it because scientists identified the problems. Uh, politicians got together and did something about it. I mean, all right, so it was a fairly easy technological substitute for refrigerants and propellants and hairspray and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the industry really resisted it, and they resisted it very vociferously for a very long time. But the politicians said, no, we want, we've got to do this. We're under pressure from the, from the general public around the world. And they went ahead and they made the, made the agreements. Hmm. I want to talk a little about, about science. We, we talk about the science of climate change and then the fact that there is a very broad consensus among scientists and institutions around the world that there is human-caused climate change. Um, and I assume you agree with, with, with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not my place to disagree with scientific consensus yeah. because I'm not a scientist. Um, but on the other hand, you, you say that uh, there are some Greens who aren't, aren't accepting some broad scientific consensus. Well, I mean, if, if, you, if you're a Green or a Green group and you, you, you say that we need to care about climate change because there is a strong scientific consensus – my challenge is that you need to then stop scaremongering about GMOs because there's just as strong a scientific consensus that GMOs are safe. Uh, and it's, it's written up by the National Academy of Sciences, by the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, by the Royal Society. You know, you name all of the same uh, reputable scientific agencies around the world who've stated their position clearly on climate change. They've done the same on GMOs. So that makes uh, people who campaign against GMOs kind of the climate skeptics of the left uh, because it's, they mostly tend to be on the left. Uh, and, and I think... This is why this is why the science challenges all of us. It's very easy to say, well, science on climate change supports my political position, therefore I'll go on about the science. But as soon as it doesn't, if you become a kind of anti-science campaigner, I think that shows an inconsistency. Hmm. By the way, I'm just parenthetically curious about um, your relationship with some of the people in the Green Movement because you are pushing against, you're challenging some of the orthodoxy. I'm challenging some of the orthodoxy, but only because I'm trying to, to craft a more uh, evidence-based environmentalism. You know, I'm a strong environmentalist, stronger now than I ever was. Um, and and it's, it's, it's absolutely about protecting the planet. Perhaps I'm more pragmatic than I was, but it's not like any of the actual critical issues have, have gone away. It's not like overfishing or deforestation or climate change have ceased to exist. Um, it's that we, uh, you know, that, that some of the things that the Greens are campaigning on actually make these problems worse. And that's what really scares me as an environmentalist. Hmm. I want to get into uh, talking a little about, about uh, you have a couple of points of emphasis that uh, when you speak, this is a, according to your, your bio here, uh, carbon neutral targets can break the, break the international logjam on climate mitigation. We can get into this with an interesting <laughs> side fact. You were advising the president of the Maldives for a while. He wanted to make his nation the first carbon neutral nation. Yeah, and and the Maldives is uh, for anyone who doesn't know is a group of very low lying islands in the in the Indian Ocean. So they're in the front line of climate change because they they will go underwater if we don't um, stop the rising sea levels. Uh, you know, in the next few decades, perhaps sometime around the the end of this century. And so, if you're if you're the head of state of this country, which is going to be going out of existence, you know, he made it his top priority. Uh, and rather than just going around the world uh, insisting that other people worked on this, he he actually want you know it was the government's policy to to become carbon neutral and to actually show that they could turn completely to solar power, because uh, the country's actually run on diesel generators. Each island has diesel generators at the moment to, to generate electricity, um, and we were some way towards beginning that process when unfortunately there was a coup, uh, and uh, he was um, ejected summarily from power and. Um, 
last February last year. So since then, the political situation has gone really downhill. And, you know, it's just that's the way the world is. You know, you have all these fantastic plans and then some, uh, unfortunately, political reality intervenes. And uh, some of those initiatives have been have gone by the wayside, I'm, I'm guessing, or what? Well, the entire plan's gone by the wayside, really. Yeah. I mean, okay. this because of the sovereign risk, really, who's going to put tens of millions or of dollars of investment in, in energy efficiency or, or solar power into a country which, where, where people are fighting on the streets? And unfortunately, mm. that's the situation. Until, until uh, the rule of law and until um, uh, you know, democracy can be properly safeguarded in this country, I don't really see that you can move forward with a carbon neutral plan. Mm. By the way, was this in any way uh, part of the reason for the, for the coup, a disagreement between, between factions, or was it just a side... No, that's been suggested, but I don't think so. Um, and the, the the history of the Maldives is that it was an autocracy until quite recently. So uh, President Nasheed, who I worked for, was the first democratically elected president. And what's happened since then is really a slide back towards the the elements of the of the former regime coming back into power. Uh, and so it's you know the real the real challenge is to is to keep this a free country. Um, and there's also been somewhat a rise of Islamic radicalism, which uh, is, is also a very negative political force in my view. Um, you know, but but democracy is is absolutely essential. You know, you, you've got to have pe- people have to have to have the right of freedom of assembly, the right of freedom of speech, or any number of carbon neutral initiatives don't make any sense. Do you see this, the Maldives, other low-lying islands, as a sort of a canary in the coal mine? They're they're facing the same threat we all face, but it's just. Uh, a little more present to them, they're 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 a threat of being underwater. Right. I mean, it's a it's a crisis, a threat of national extinction if you're a low lying coral atoll. But there aren't, you know, there aren't this, globally. It's, it's probably half a million people living in those those situations. Um, people in in low lying coastal areas um, have also have that threat. But you can, of course, protect uh, some areas. I mean, the Dutch are, are largely below sea level already. They have an enormous system of dikes, which they expect to protect them for the next two or three hundred years, however rapidly the sea levels rise. So. That involves being a rich enough country to be able to build those kind, that kind of levels of coastal fortification. I mean, they're going to have to do this in New York. You know, we've got a uh, the, the River Thames has a big barrier now to stop storm surges. They're going to have to do something similar um, in the um, in, in the in the uh, the bay there because uh, this is going to be an increasing problem as we get stronger stronger extreme weather events. We're talking with Mark Linus. He is author of several books on uh, climate change related topics. Uh, the latest is the God Species. Uh, saving the planet in the age of humans. He was on the USU campus recently in a, uh, an appearance for the Quinney College of Natural Resources. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be back with uh, Mark Linus. We'll talk about uh, his ideas on feeding an exploding population, 9 billion people by 2050. How are we going to feed all those people? Mark Linus is uh, a bit more hopeful than you, you might think um, if we can do some things. Mark Linus on Access Utah back after the break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're back with Mark Linus, who was on the Utah State University campus recently for a couple of lectures for the Quinney College of Natural Resources. Mark Linus, author of uh, several books on climate change-related topics. The latest is The God Species, Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. By the way, marklinus.org, if you want to uh, check out his website. A lot of articles there and uh, links to uh, where to go get his books. Uh, Mark Linus is a frequent speaker around the world on climate change science and policy. Focusing in particular on how carbon-neutral targets can break the international logjam on, log on climate mitigation and how emissions reduction uh, should be seen as an opportunity, not a uh, sacrifice. And, uh, Mark Linus, I want to talk a little bit about uh, population explosion. Uh, estimates are 9 billion uh, people by 2050. And uh, I believe uh, you were saying something I was reading from you, that um, agricultural output will have to double and uh, 
effects from farming on the on the climate will have to be halved if we're going to be successful in feeding all those people and and uh, solving some of these climate change problems. Right. So you, let's start off by looking at the numbers. Uh, the global population increases by about 75 million people per year. So that's it's about a new Germany added to the global population each year. Um, now, why is that? I mean, a lot of people think, well, it's people in poorer countries simply having too many children. But the truth is that most of that increase comes about because of reductions in mortality, so increasing life, life expectancy, which, of course, is a good thing. Um, infant mortality in particular has been drastically reduced in, in developing countries, including across um, m- most of sub-Saharan Africa. So this means, in, in reality, in ordinary people's lives, that people aren't having to watch their children die of pre- preventable diseases like malaria and, and diarrhea from bad water, nearly to the extent that they did in comparatively recently. So these children are surviving. They're then surviving to have their own children, and that's essentially the source of the, of the, of the population increase that we're going to see until mid century So it's not a tractable – you can't say, right, let's stop people having as many children and so on and so forth. Actually, the, the global average fertility rate is now 2.5, and natural replacement will be 2.1. So we're not far off. It's really about, um, about people surviving, and that's got to be a good thing. So we've got to provide – the food and the lifestyles that people increasingly demand because people are moving out of poverty uh, very rapidly. And that's, this, this is a great thing. This is what I've wanted to see my whole life. Uh, and now tens of millions of people per year are joining the middle class. Um, people are having uh, aspiring to the kinds of lifestyles which I have and I want for my children and you probably want for, for people in your area and your own family. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's something that we all have a right to. But that does mean that we have to double, double, at least double food production by the, um, by the year 2050 when the population should be 9.5 billion. So how do we do that? Well, not, the, the challenge is not just to do that, but to do that without expanding the use of agricultural land so that we then uh, chop down most of the rainforests. If we try and do that on the, with the technologies that we're using today, we would have to bring about another South America's worth into, produ- into production. So that would mean we'd lose all of the Amazonian rainforest, most of the Congolese rainforest, all of the Indonesian rainforest would all go under the plow if we were to produce that food um, using conventional um, techniques that we have at the moment. By the way, if we tried to do that using organic farming, we'd have to have to, to cultivate even more land because it's it's 30 to 50 percent less productive, um, so, which is why or- organic is not an environmental solution, which is scalable in my opinion. Um, so we have to w- do what's called sustainable intensification. We have to pr- increase yields dramatically on the land area that we've got at the moment, without using more agrochemicals, which have have uh, have toxic effects on aquatic systems and wildlife and so on, and hopefully without increasing the use of fertilizers. Um, now, there's so many really interesting biological things which are going on at the moment. There's, um, there's a team in the UK who are, who are using GMO techniques to try and get corn, uh, rice to be leguminous, so to fix their own ni- nitrogen so they wouldn't actually have to have artificial fertilizers, which is, you know, if that happens, that's incredible. So there's some really exciting things, but basically we've got to keep on improving yields. At the moment, the yields have begun to flatten out, and that's why we're in a situation where food prices are going up because there's an imbalance between supply and demand. So you're advocating uh, goals where we we feed the people who um, are part of this population explosion. Some, I'm, as I, you no doubt are aware, are saying that no, population control is, is one thing that we have to push. Yeah, but the population control doesn't make any sense unless you're talking about killing people. And, and I'm not being facetious. Um, it isn't that people need to be encouraged to have fewer children because, as I said earlier on, fertility rates are already quite low uh, and dropping fast all the time. And the reason... 
uh, fertility rates are falling is because people are getting out of poverty. They have access to family planning. Um, girls' education is a really important aspect of that as well, and as is urbanization. When people move out of traditional societies and they move to towns, then, then women have their own careers, and uh, you know, which you don't have when they're stuck in a village um, scratching a very meager living from the land in a very patriarchal traditional system. So modern development is actually an extremely important part in reducing the, 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 the demographic pressure of increasing population. And I wonder, uh, you have a statistic here, one quarter to one third of uh, what you call net primary productivity of the planet <laughs> goes to sustain one species. Yeah, we need to probably define what, uh, what net primary productivity means. And that's essentially the, um, the, the solar energy being captured in photosynthetic production. So all of the, the plants in the world put together, inc- including in the sea, uh, um, about a quarter of, to a third of that is being used to sustain just this one species, Homo sapiens. And, of course, that means that all of that energy isn't available to, to the rest of the biosphere, um, so to, or, except to the extent that they can use our waste. So, you know, that's, that's why we're displacing uh, other species to the margins. And that's, that's sort of a – there's not a lot we can do about that. You know, farming, agriculture is about the most environmentally damaging thing that we do as, as a species, but it's also the most essential. You know, you cannot, you cannot sustain our populations without having extremely intensive and very large-scale um, agriculture. Uh, it's, incredibly, it's actually incredibly efficient and incredibly effective. Uh, and, and the fact that we've had increasing yields um, through new technologies being brought in over the last few decades, through the Green Revolution in particular, has actually enabled us to, 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 to increase food production by an enormous amount without increasing very much the amount of land we're cultivating. So pe- you know, people who are very against conventional agriculture forget or don't understand actually the extent to which it's already helping environmentally. Hmm. And all of these planetary boundaries, of course, are interrelated, are they not? Uh, so, for example, you talk about population, you're talking about land and water. Along with climate change and, and some of the, they're all interrelated. Um, and what you do in one area is going to affect the other area, right? Do you? But it seems like it seems like you are optimistic. You you said that at the beginning of the program. It seems like as we've been talking, you're you're optimistic. Well, either either we already have, or I can imagine us having that all of the technologies that we need to to solve these problems, or at least substantially address them, so that we can, you know, imagine. Imagine if this is going to be the greatest century that humanity's ever had, that all of these children who are being born today um, and who are born into poverty will move out of poverty over the next few decades. They'll have, they'll have great education. They'll have the opportunity to be the next Einstein. They'll have the opportunity to change the world and to use their brain power to help us solve these problems um, if they have access to education. Um, and, and if we allow that, that as a cause of cultural priority, that, that innovation is something which is valued. And what really worries me about so much of of the kind of gloomy negativity is that people don't value knowledge. You know, saying we're against GMOs mean I'm against a whole aspect of molecular biology. I'm against knowledge in that sense. I'm against uh, nuclear. I'm against knowledge of how of nuclear fission. I'm against, you know, you, you shouldn't be against knowledge, against the accumulation of knowledge or against the way that we increase our technological prowess because that's the way that humans have always solved problems since the beginning of time you know we're 10,000 times more productive than we were as hunter gatherers now because and exclusively because of technology and you don't think we have passed an irretrievable tipping point we're we're as long as we keep keep trying with this we'll we'll get a grip on this if we've passed some kind of climate tipping point we don't know about it yet so there's not a whole lot of point in 
<laughs> in, in saying that we have. I mean, yet we're probably beyond a tipping point where we could save the Arctic sea ice. I think we're going to see open water at the North Pole within a relatively short space of time, and there's nothing we can do about that. We're, we're past a tipping point where we're going to see less than two degrees of warming. So we're, we're into the very serious amounts of, 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 of warming this century already, which is why it's, it's that much more urgent to deal with the emissions uh, situation across the board and, and to do that within the context of, of solving poverty and providing food and, and energy for the world's population sustainably. Before we reach the end of the program, I wanted to, to go back to bi- biodiversity. This uh, seems like you know less and less diversity among uh, species, and I don't know how you how do you solve that. I think that's the toughest one. It's not like there's some technology we can pull out of a box to save um, the great apes, you know. But you know, it's worth all of the great apes—the chimpanzees, the orangutans, the bonobos—they're all threatened or critically endangered now in the wild. Um, because of human activities, so and really the only way to protect to protect these species is is to protect the habitats that they depend on, and that means not not allowing further encroachment into 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 wild and natural areas, which means it gives us yet another reason why we 've got to produce more food on the areas of land that we 're already cultivating. Um, and so agriculture really is the biggest driver towards biodiversity loss, and that's why we've got to focus on that on, on improving yields and that as, as a real a real killer um, uh, of, of our natural species if we don't do it. We talked earlier in the program uh, about the the green movement. You say that to, to the extent that the greens are denying uh, science knowledge in the area of nuclear power of GMOs, that uh, they're part of the problem. Of course. Other areas of agreement you have with with greens. Uh, I wonder what you would say to uh, climate change skeptics. They're 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 a danger, perhaps, by putting on the brakes on uh, on, on progress that we need to be making at, at a fairly accelerated pace. Well, there are certain aspects of of climate skepticism which are perfectly legitimate, in my view, and and, and admirable. You know, it's important to keep challenging scientists to to open their data. Because um, you can have a process of groupthink. I, you know, I think ClimateGate did expose some of that stuff. Um, and I think there's been a big reform in, in climate science as a response to that. But in terms of the logic of this, we know for certain that humans have increased carbon, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere by 30% since pre-industrial times. We know for certain that um, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. You can prove that in the laboratory in two seconds. Um, what we don't know is the extent to which these factors combine to, to cause a, a warming in the Earth system. Uh, so we don't know how dramatic that warming is going to be. Then maybe there's other things that will counterbalance it, like aerosols. Maybe the, the world isn't so sensitive to greenhouse, to, to CO2 forcing. We don't know. The, there's no firm answer to all of these things. And that's the area where scientific discussion is legitimate. What's not legitimate, in my view, is to say, is to kind of wish away CO2 and say, oh, it's not a problem. It can't possibly cause warming. Although all the warming's natural. That's, that's, that's just denialism, and I don't think that's acceptable. If someone is concerned about climate change, planetary boundaries... What would you suggest that they do? How to take action? Um, I think the important thing is to is to re, is to begin to understand some of the interrelations and not to just accept the very common sticking plaster solutions. So it's not about eating local. It's not about organic. Um, it's not about even just putting solar panels up. It's about looking at the totality of these issues. Um, and that does mean yes, you've got to write to your senators and say, "I want a new nuclear power station." Um, you've got to begin to have that discussion in the environmental movement, and we've got to make common cause across political boundaries. You know. If there's to be uh, a way that we can seriously reduce carbon pollution in the U.S., it's going to have to include Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Republicans seem to generally like nuclear. Um, Democrats seem to generally like renewables. Fine, I'm happy with them both. Let's go forward with it. You know, so it, we we need we need to move away from the kind of very polarized 
um, a partisan approach to climate change, which is rather exemplified by the sort of Al Gore. And I'm not sure it's his fault necessarily, but the way he's perceived uh, and the way that <laughs> certainly so many Republicans that I speak to respond so negatively to the things he said uh, that they then go, right, climate change isn't a problem. If Al Gore thinks it's a problem, I don't think it's a problem. You know, that's, that's too simplistic. We've got, to get be- we've got to do better than that. We've been talking with Mark Linus, who was on the Utah State University campus as a guest of the Quinney College of Natural Resources, uh, giving a couple of lectures. Those lectures, by the way, were Sustainable Agriculture, GMOs, Organic, and How to Feed the World. And the other lecture was uh, Climate Change Solutions. Mark Linus is author of several books on climate change and related to topics. The latest of those is The God Species. Uh, subtitle is Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. Uh, by the way, a uh, place to go to find out more, marklinus.org. Mark Linus, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.